Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Daniel Kurd and Diana Greenwald. Diana is an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Richmond, and Diana is an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the City College of New York. Thank you both so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. No, it's great to have you on. And both of you recently published pieces in Melg's special issue on recentering Palestinian society in the study of politics, uh, which was edited by Wendy Perlman. And I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the origin of the special issue and, and how it came together. Yeah, we basically had um, some conversations that came out of uh, a panel at the Middle East Studies Association conference um, back in, I think, 2020, where we observed that we had this panel of excellent scholars and work on Palestinian politics, but there just didn't seem to be all that much work being published in political science in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm speaking about the subfield of comparative politics, but even within sort of the subset of that work focused on the MENA region, there wasn't as much work being published on Palestinian politics or Palestinian society in historic Palestine. So, you know, we had a lot of amazing work that was coming out about Palestinians in the diaspora from a a range of scholars like Nadia Hajj and Sarah Parkinson and others. And we had some influential work, uh, mostly in book form, actually, that had come out over the years from, you know, U.S.-based scholars and political scientists like Amani Jamal and Wendy Perlman and uh, Dana herself, uh, Yael Zera and others. But the journals in particular were simply not publishing much on uh, contemporary Palestinian society. Mm. So there was actually some research done on this by um, Melanie Kamet and her co-author Isabel Kendall. They did a study published in uh, 2021 in the journal PS, and they collected data on all the articles on MENA politics published over the past 20 years in the top political science journals. And almost everything they found related to Palestine was about kind of Israeli-Palestinian dyadic relations. So out of the 222 articles on MENA politics across 20 years, 13 journals, um, and many different uh, authors, they found only two of those spoke to Palestinians living in historic Palestine. And so... We basically brought some scholars together who were all, uh, not necessarily all political scientists, and certainly, you know, all the authors that we brought together for this issue do not represent, you know, a comprehensive list of all the political scientists working on, on Palestine right now. Um, there are many others out there. But we, we brought together a set of scholars that wanted to kind of address Palestinian politics and society centrally, and were doing so in their work. Um, and so I think that's kind of the the origin story of this special issue. Mm. Yeah, the low number of articles directly focusing on Palestinian society is really interesting. Um, For the sake of comparison, do you know how many of the surveyed articles were on Israeli society? Yeah, so out of those 222 articles that they studied, 31 were on Israel, 21 were dealing with 
Israel-Palestine or Israeli-Palestinian relations. Like the conflict, yeah. Right, exactly. And then only two were really about Palestinian uh, society proper. Interesting. Um, and could you maybe explain what you mean by, by recentering society in this context? Yeah, I mean, I can um, get that started just kind of drawing on the, the introductory piece in this special issue, which Wendy Perlman wrote. Um, we were really delighted to get Wendy on board with this as guest editor. But I guess, you know, the unifying theme that we found among the authors that were involved in this issue across the really kind of a diverse set of topics, um, methodological approaches, and substantive focus, the unifying theme was, you know, that we're all kind of working to um, try to reflect and engage with and speak to the more or less ordinary or kind of regular Palestinian society. And Wendy talks about this in her piece, not just focusing on political elites, not just focusing on Palestinians as kind of recipients of Israeli policies or recipients of U.S. or international policies, but trying to bring in kind of fresh approaches to Palestinian, you know, agency and behavior and really, frankly, kind of survival within the contemporary uh, setting. Yeah, I would just add that obviously like normatively, like that's important. I think all the things that Diana mentioned is to like focus on Palestinian society and not presume a lack of agency, but also in terms of social science, I think we miss a lot when we don't do that. Um, and I think that's why political science literature has been less useful in discussing the Palestinian case um, as, it like, as it relates to the conflict, as it relates to itself, as it relates to the region. I think it just there's so many blind spots because we don't take that as the as the starting premise. Yeah. And Donna, I was wondering, I mean, why do you think Palestinians, you know, have not been given a voice in the literature? Do we maybe neglect Palestinian voices because we see them as, you know, not being able to have a say or influence in an authoritarian context? Or is it more to do with, you know, seeing everything through the lens of the conflict? You know, what do you think is contributing to this dynamic? I mean, I, I can see that a little bit in terms of like just the context, perhaps people presume things about Palestinian society. But at the same time, like there are a lot of societies that live under authoritarianism and like we've studied them at, uh, to a great extent, um, like all the stuff on Russia, all the stuff on China, like Palestine is not so unique. But I think there is this kind of exceptionalizing of the Palestinians. Sometimes it's a cop out just so that you don't have to like dig in or take them seriously or things like that. If I'm going to be really frank, like I think political science is kind of conservative and the kinds of research that would center Palestinians would come to conclusions that I think the largely conservative political science discipline would chafe at. Um, so I think that there are kind of certain biases in our discipline. This is less so in you know other adjacent like social science and humanities disciplines, though I'm sure that's the case as well. But political science is particularly bad on this, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably to some extent that conservative kind of inclination that's almost not... Um, not even necessarily ideological in political science, but it's kind of baked into the way that we ask our questions. And, you know, a lot of research, for example, seems to kind of be focused on identifying, you know, causal effects in political science. Not that that's at all a bad thing or necessarily restrictive of doing a lot of research in Palestine, um, as we know from some of the great pieces in this issue, but it tends to focus on kind of more small level changes rather than, you know, trying to understand a system 
that as a whole has been like more or less constant and static for, you know, at least like 55 years if we're talking about the 1967 occupation and, you know, even longer if we're talking about since 1948. And so in that way, I think Palestine has kind of become this like elephant in the room in political science that people just kind of try to work around, but not really address. And I will say that like, on the sources of data, I don't know, maybe Diana has a different opinion, like, feel free to push back. But like, I really think that sometimes like, sources of information that come from Palestine, or come from Palestinians are seen with some suspicion. I, I feel like I face that a lot. Um, when in my own research, where it's like, I've, you know, I've done all these interviews. But are you sure? Uh, I've got the survey data. Well, the limitations of survey data. And like, I don't really feel the same level of scrutiny towards data, at least, you know, my anecdotal evidence, like dealing with like colleagues who work outside this particular topic area. I, I, I think there's more scrutiny towards data from the region generally, but from Palestine also in, in particular. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I haven't conducted research in Palestine, but I've definitely seen this dynamic elsewhere in the region, you know, taking everything from authors within the region or sources within the region as a grain of salt and seeing sort of external voices as more uh, neutral. Mm -hmm. Um, And another aspect of the special issue that I think is is really important is that all of the contributors are are using Palestine as a case to understand a broader phenomena. So I was wondering, you know, if you could maybe speak to the kinds of ways that Palestine as a case can help us to understand, you know, other authoritarian contexts or, or relevant contexts. So I may, I may have already said this a couple times now, but like Palestine is not separate from the region, right? So like, I think that a lot of the dynamics that we want to understand about the Middle East, North Africa region generally, like we can understand using the case of Palestine. So similar dynamics of international intervention, uh, and if you want to understand kind of the impact of international intervention, I think Palestine is a good case for that. In my book, I have a theory and I apply it to different cases. Uh, and I say like it's across the state sovereignty spectrum. So I apply it to a case like Palestine that's not fully sovereign, but also a sovereign state like Bahrain. And like I try to show that the dynamics are similar, whether or not you buy my argument. But I think that certain um, effects can be seen across the board with, with regards to international intervention. Additionally, like the Palestinian Authority, the way that it functions, if you want to understand authoritarian strategies, like it's not so out of the norm. Um, I think it can be a case that's useful for that as well. And the transnational components of authoritarianism, like if you want to kind of uh, use Palestine as a case to highlight the kind of transnational element of modern day authoritarianism, like I think that's really useful also. Yeah. And I mean, just to add to that, I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, and this isn't necessarily something that I think is centrally addressed in any of the articles of our issue, but whether, for example, in the West Bank and Gaza, if we should be continuing to refer to these as an, this this status of this territory as an occupation, and like the terminology of occupation versus the terminology of apartheid versus authoritarianism versus, you know, settler colonialism and colonial, you know, indirect rule and all of these frames these are kind of general concepts that allow you to really bring Palestine into a literature on a whole set of other cases. And I think in particular about military occupation and just with the current news cycle and what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine and a lot of the analyses coming out about obviously the perceived, you know, outrage and illegitimacy of occupation. But 
those of us that study, you know, Palestine and study the occupied territories kind of have a lens to view like, well, what happens when occupation gets normalized, right? And what happens when occupation fades into annexation? Um, and so I think that these are, you know, lessons that basically, it's not like we have to convince people that Palestine slots into their existing understanding of some other place in the world. It's more like, no, you can learn from Palestine about these other places. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then shifting from what the recentering of Palestinian society can contribute to our broader, you know, theoretical understanding, what does it tell us about Palestine itself? You know, how does recentering Palestinian society help to capture and explain the current moment in Palestine? Well, recentering Palestinian society will explain certain trends related to activism, related to resistance that helps us understand why uh, the elites have become irrelevant. I mean, right. just right off the bat, like if you've been studying Palestinian society, this doesn't come as a surprise to you. It doesn't come as a surprise to you that the PA is illegitimate or or, or seeding ground or any of those kinds of things. So just just to even make sense of kind of the current events um, that are sensationalized. Yeah, it doesn't come as a surprise to people who have been monitoring. Yeah, and I, you know, Wendy kind of touches on exactly that to echo what Dana is saying. You know, we have a certain understanding of what's going on in Palestine um, based on news headlines and such. And so the question could be like, as scholars, do we really care, you know, that the um, news and media and think tanks and kind of the talking heads are, are, are talking only about elites and talking only about, you know, what the PA is doing or what, you know, Hamas is doing and, and ignoring Palestinian society. But you know, Wendy points out in her piece, like this really can seep into scholarly research agendas and understandings of the region. And then the types of, you know, research that gets funded and the types of research that gets published. And so, you know, in, in her introduction of the special issue, she really kind of calls on us as social scientists to draw on some of the kind of like deep embedding within, you know, the societal context that scholars in Palestine studies, you know, historians, anthropologists, sociologists have been doing for a long time and bring that level of attentiveness to political science. Yeah. And for those that aren't following events, you know, as closely in Palestine, what are some of the key changes and dynamics, you know, that we are seeing? What are some of those developments, Dana, that, that you suggested, you know, aren't really surprising? So, like, first off, I think um, the increased use of armed resistance as a tactic that I think is, is um, to be expected. But then if you haven't been following... You're like, but what happened to the nonviolent, like awesome, you know, protests that used to happen in the villages or whatever? Another thing is the PA kind of n not just being highly illegitimate. I think that's been obvious for for over a decade, but also ceding ground now to to kind of um, more local forces. Um, I think that's something. Additionally, the way that the way that activism looks, like the Unity Intifada, I maybe surprised all of us in its scope, but people who have been following like iterations of protest movements, like weren't so surprised when like particular people, you know, put together uh, um, certain, certain actions and, and put together certain groups and, and could kind of follow the, the, the thread from like 2011, 2014 till today. And, and yeah, what culminated in the unity intifada. Yeah. Interesting. 
Um, Diana, would you like to add anything onto that? While Dana was talking, I was thinking about also like the transnational dimensions that Dana's been working on more recently too. So I don't know how you're seeing that reflected in what's going on in Palestine. Like you've been writing on pro-Palestinian activism and elsewhere in MENA being repressed, but nonetheless, you did see with the 2021, the unity in Safada, you definitely saw a lot of transnational solidarity and elevating of the of what was going on. So is that something that we could say is kind of like something new to pay attention to? Yeah, I think so. Like how Palestine impacts activism, it, not just activism, but like dissent across the region. I think that's true. But also like when you first started talking, I thought you were referencing like the Abraham Accords and normalization, which is um, another element. Um, what that kind of transnational <laughs> dynamic is doing is changing also kind of the, I don't know what, what to call it, like the bargaining frontier. What's the weird IR word that people use? Yeah, or the the range, or the, the, ra- the bargaining yeah, range, like the or bargaining something. Framework, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, like the arena in which, like these activists and these these autocrats are basically, you know. Well, like particularly for Palestinians, I think that a lot of the state level transnational stuff has narrowed what they're willing to bargain about. Um, it has made the conflict much more existential for a variety of reasons that we can get into if, if, you, if mm-hmm. you're interested in that. But like, yeah, so how Palestine is impacting dissent across the region, kind of like bottom up, but also top down how some of this transnational stuff is is playing a role in, in making the conflict, yeah, just way more existential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, Dana. Could you maybe, you know, expand a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. So with the rise of a very, very right wing government in Israel and worsening conditions on the ground and like, frankly, fascistic elements entering kind of, you know, center stage, Palestinians are already kind of widely accepting of the idea that there is no partner for any kind of like negotiation or peace on the other side. But then on top of that, when there's these normalization deals between the state of Israel and kind of historically like Arab allies of the Palestinians, um, that also makes Palestinian society much more intransigent in in kind of uh, seeing this as an existential conflict. And yeah, just there's not a lot of space for any kind of Im- imagining of a of a, a shared future. And I and I want to be really careful about what I'm saying here because I'm not I'm not claiming that like that's an irrational point for them to to arrive at. It's just the conditions are really bad, but. Um, I think we have to think about like what this means for the future of the conflict as well. Yeah. And I think the um, developments within the new Israeli government and sort of the vocal commitment to expulsion, basically, to using, wielding military force and violence to compel either Palestinian submission or or resorting to things like expulsion when that is ineffective. I mean, it's it's being stated in such bare terms that are, yeah, as Dana said, so existential. And then if at the same time you see this kind of, you know, weakening of international support from, from some traditional allies, at least the governments of these countries, then, you know, you have to turn to different tactics and find different ways to mobilize and different ways to build like society you know, this is where society comes back in, right? Like societal level connections um, and solidarity. 
yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So like at the societal level, like civil society groups who kind of have that framework, that's what they're doing. But then like armed groups are coming to a very different conclusion. So like, yeah, all of that is, is you know, is a recipe for <laughs> very near future disaster where uh, armed resistance groups are to a large degree kind of at odds with civil society on some of these questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that makes me think about, you know, what it means to be in the post-Oslo era and where where that leaves us in terms of understanding, you know, the shift away from the Oslo era. You know, was there sort of a fundamental change in the situation or was it more sort of a, a matter of degree? I mean, I do think there are implications at, at the very local level in, you know, the West Bank, for example, which is where nearly all of my research to date has been and, you know, where I kind of focus a lot of attention. But, you know, the complete withdrawal and kind of all but collapse of the Palestinian Authority security forces and policing, you know, has really meant, as as uh, Dana was referencing, this kind of uh, forming of these highly localized, you know, grassroots urban militias in the West Bank to position themselves between Palestinian populations and the Israeli military and to play that role that we normally think of like a state military or, or coercive agent as playing, you know, in the absence as Oslo has become just such a blatant fiction at this point. I mean, there's no more real distinction between you know, Israel, how Israel's approaching like areas A, B, and C in the West Bank anymore. I, I mean, perhaps in terms of settlements, there are, and the use of the land and the, ex, you know, expropriation of land. But, you know, there's been a real kind of dissolving of any kind of pretense that Palestinians practice some kind of autonomous self-governance, like within these territories, and especially in the realm of policing and security. So, so one thing I'm, you know, kind of trying to follow and, and writing a bit on it now is just this localization uh, of the Palestinian national struggle and how, from the perspective of the current Israeli government, the goal here is that that will atomize and completely kind of denationalize Palestinians, right, towards that ultimate goal of forcing them to essentially surrender to Israeli annexation or or leave or be expelled. But of course, that's not going to happen, right? Because we have decades and decades and, you know, more of history of Palestinians at the local level, either using kind of local municipal institutions or local civil institutions, and then also forming these kind of localized uh, defensive or armed institutions to advance the national cause. So that geographic fragmentation has always been there. But I almost think that by Israel's attempts to totally dissolve all elements of national of a national institutional structure, they're not atomizing Palestinians, they're actually uniting them in a way. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that really sounds um, correct to me. Like, I feel like the Oslo time period, like, obviously, it had huge impacts on Palestinian politics, and Palestinian society. And like, levels of polarization and all of that. But the Oslo time period was kind of successful in like getting Palestinians to diverge a little bit from kind of a unified struggle. But because of Israeli intransigence, 
that's that's reunifying, I think, and that's what we saw with the unity in Tafoda and subsequent uh, events since then. Maybe we don't discount how much Israeli repression does have an impact on like actually uh, shutting things down, but um, just kind of like in the discourse around Palestine, it's become um, much more unified in the, in the last couple of years. Yeah. And is that reflected generationally? Are are the younger generations more unified than their their older counterparts? I can speak to that a little bit just because the paper Mark Tesler and I have in this special issue does deal with generations and cohorts and then would be interested to hear Dana's thoughts here. But I think the interesting thing is that in our paper, we're looking at a much earlier generation and we find, yes, in a very specific setting and context, which was for our survey data we were using really like the late 1990s up until 2000. So it was kind of the the Oslo years, like right before the outbreak of the second intifada. Yes, there was kind of an element where men in particular for men who kind of came of age during the first intifada and during like the early Oslo years, they did seem to have some distinctive attitudes towards the PA and towards PA institutions when compared to other generations or cohorts. But I'm not sure today that you would necessarily find the same thing. So in the sense that like uh, there are distinctive kind of attitudinal orientations among like specific cohorts or generations of Palestinians. And obviously I haven't done this analysis yet, but you know, if you just think about it, of course, when we see those who are most likely to get into protest or armed, you know, armed confrontations with, with Israeli forces in like, Janine or in Nablus or in, you know, the West Bank these days, yes, those tend to be young men. They tend to be, uh, or even, you know, teenagers um, and young boys. So this might seem to indicate there's some kind of, you know, generational element here, but we have to keep in mind that could just be age, right? So those same young men and boys might end up pursuing different strategies and, and choices and tactics as they get older. So it's just like they just happen to be in this environment while they're, you know, at this age. And it's really just their own their own age that's driving what's going on. But today, I feel like coming back to some of what we said earlier, there seems to be much more kind of coherence in terms of attitudes towards like Oslo institutions, for example. So there's generally just a widespread, you know, rejection of Oslo institutions and a widespread widespread you know, support for, you know, Palestinian resistance. And so I think Dan is probably able to speak to this more as well, but I'm not sure you'd necessarily see these kind of stark differences across generations or even across necessarily age groups. I I would agree now that is the case. I think that the situation has become so clear that I think you wouldn't find necessarily generational differences around their commitment to the kind of Oslo framework or not. I think there used to be that kind of difference. Um, I think, I mean, I don't have data like Diana and Mark do, but but I have like kind of just anecdotally and like based on some of the interviews I did, there were certain generations that had made these commitments based on their political partisan affiliations to the Palestinian Authority as a, as a concept, as an institution. And 
younger people who didn't have that same kind of trajectory, like weren't as committed or weren't as um, desperate for this or this uh, this project to to succeed. Another thing I was going to say, just kind of going off of what Diana's describing, I think there's also an element of class, not just generational difference. I think I think class plays a really big role. Like I think a lot of the armed resistance we're seeing is coming from certain class backgrounds. And I think it makes perfect sense. People like in Janine Camp or, you know, the old city of Nablus or these kinds of places that have not only been suffering under Israeli, you know, occupation and repression, but have been denied so many privileges and services and things like this. There is a class element, I think, to who we're seeing resist how, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, And as part of this question of how of resistance, you know, whether or not they're using violent tactics... Um, yeah, I, I think so. I think that, like Diana was saying, like there's a lot of coherence, a lot more coherence now about rejecting Oslo and being pro-armed resistance. But who's actually participating in armed resistance? I think that that is different from, like there's large-scale support, I'd say, or understanding. But yeah, people of a certain class background like are much more likely to go into a protest or engaging in 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 online advocacy or those kinds of outlets uh, and much less likely to be going down to Janine camp. Yeah. And I think, you know, in an earlier discussion, Ezra, you were asking like where we would like to see the study of Palestinian politics go. And I think that's a great point, like that class in at least political science research on Palestine, we haven't really paid much attention to class. And so that's an area that, it's not emphasized in, for example, the articles in this special issue. It's not really a major uh, sort of driver of variation that we're seeking to understand. And, and I think that's a great launching point for, for future research. Yeah, for sure. And before we wrap up today, I wanted to, to ask you about the, the impact of the current literature on Palestine. You know, whether you think the literature is affecting what we're seeing on the ground or or whether it can indeed have an impact on what we're seeing i i don't know like i don't want to like overstate ever the impact of <laughs> academic studies on on anything but i would say like like there are some pieces in this in this uh in in this particular special issue that like speak directly to civil society actors and and things like cybersecurity and stuff like that. So those are, you know, those have very direct impacts. It's it's up to academics to publicly engage in that way. But yeah, like they they absolutely can inform those kinds of immediate decisions uh, uh that Palestinians are making. But also like more you know, more broadly outside the scope of just this special issue, like I think Palestinians in their research around kind of liberal notions of nationalism and citizenship, I think they have really changed the discourse on that topic, you know, in the broader public. So Palestinian scholars writing about the limitations of the human rights framework, the the Palestinian scholars writing about the limitations of Israeli citizenship, the limitations of uh how we describe the the this as a conflict rather than settler colonialism, like all of those kinds of, all of those kinds of discussions that started in maybe academic journals or were at least, you know, maybe it was iterative. I, I don't, I don't, I don't maybe want to claim that 100%, but they were published in academic journals and like have now had a larger impact um, on kind of the public discourse and, and the discussions that are being had about, um, you know, the future of this conflict. And, and sometimes in a, you know, all the ways that I listed were very positive, but sometimes also in a negative way. So I think like 
the way that we understand settler colonialism, I think, has been not been very nuanced and so is leading to certain conclusions amongst the broader public. But yeah, larger discussion, uh, perhaps not fitting for the end of this. Yeah, I don't think I have much to add on that one. That was, I, I was just, I would say there is some scholarship that is much more intentional about trying to support, you know, Palestinian civil society. And I think Dana mentioned like in this special issue, Alexei Abrahams and um, his co-author Etienne Manier have this, this piece where they look at how vulnerable Palestinian civil society organizations are to um, cyber attacks. And they do a comparative analysis of other international organizations, websites. And so this is like one, you know, strategy for trying to provide some kind of practical uh, recommendations, which they do in the in the article for for Palestinian organizing online, in this case, for Palestinian online, you know, mobilization and civil society actors. And I think, you know, as Dana's kind of hinted at, some scholars are going to be much more inclined towards that kind of work and and others are not. But I do like this kind of idea of this kind of back and forth uh, or sort of iterative engagement that Dana mentioned between, you know, activists and um, advocacy organizations and scholars in both directions, like Dana said, where it's not just that we're producing kind of this ivory tower understanding of Palestine and delivering it down on from on high to them, but it's, it, you know, it's learning from what's going on on the ground and letting that inform our scholarship and inform, you know, what we deem important enough for, you know, uh, to, to write about. Thank you for saying it that way. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Just riffing. <laughs> Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today. So thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. It's it's really been great to speak with both of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for putting it together. Yeah. No, thank you again. And thanks for everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast. 